1: 36% better on average
0: compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. The year 1576 saw the first purpose-built playhouse in England, the theatre built in Shoreditch by James Burbage and John and Margaret Brain. Now, playing spaces in and around London are known to exist earlier. Performances at the White Horse Tavern are recorded in the 1540s, and then there's the Playhouse Inn's The Boar's Head and The Red Lion, who were staging performances from the late 1550s and 1560s respectively. But 1576 is usually regarded as the beginning of the commercial theatre in England because soon afterwards we see performances at the Blackfriars Playhouse in the City of London, the construction of a playhouse at Newton Butts, and the opening of the Curtain, situated by the theatre. By 1587, the first major playhouse on Bankside, The Rose, not far from the modern-day Globe Theatre, in fact, was built by Philip Henslow. Playgoers could now watch performances at Playhouse Inns, such as The Bell Savage on Ludgate Hill, or the bull on Bishopsgate Street, and the bell and the cross keys, which neighboured one another on Gracechurch Street. And the next few decades saw the construction of the Swan in 1595, the Second Blackfriars in 1596, the Globe 1599, Fortune in 1600, the Red Bull in 1604, the Whitefriars in 1608, and the Cockpit in 1617. You get the idea. Playgoing had become an integral part of early modern life in London. But what do we know about a playgoer's experience? What kinds of performances were put on? How were theatres built? What did they look and sound like? Who saw plays? And did this vary between venues? How would audiences have chosen what to see? And what kind of longevity did plays have? Here to talk all things playgoing is Dr. Owen Price a theatre historian and senior lecturer in English literature at Swansea University. Dr. Price is the author of Public and Private Playhouses in Renaissance England, The Politics of Publication, as well as contributing to literary journals such as Shakespeare Survey, Shakespeare Bulletin and Early Theatre. His current projects include Shakespeare's Successors, which examines plays written for the King's Men Company after the death of Shakespeare, as well as the Leverhulme-funded project Playgoing Time, Elizabethan London. Dr. Price, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I'm delighted to welcome you because I remember reading some wonderful work of yours about playhouses some time back and having obviously brushed up more recently to talk to you today. And I think it's something that lots of people won't immediately have come to their mind about the experience of living in Shakespeare's England and about the playhouses at the time. So we're going to get into some really wonderful stuff about the nature of the theatre and you're the perfect person to talk to and I'm very grateful you're here. So perhaps we can start with thinking about the audience. Who went to the theatre at this time and what do we know about them and do we have any sense that that audience might have varied between playhouse ins and indoor and outdoor playhouses.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. We know that lots of different people went to see plays. Playing was a major form of entertainment. It wasn't the only form of entertainment, but it was a major form of entertainment that lots of people enjoyed. And that cut across all kinds of different sorts of social groups and categories. And there were lots of different playhouses in London throughout the period in which there was professional playing. So from, say, 1567, which is the earliest thing that we call a playhouse. I mean, we've got to be a little bit careful about some of these assumptions because what exactly is a playhouse is a question that's not quite as secure as it first seems. Right through to 1642, when there's a ban on theatrical playing, which doesn't completely stop playing, actually. There's some illegal performances, but we're then entering into a very different kind of terrain. And across that time, there were lots of different playhouses. There were usually several in operation at any given time, and they'd be in different parts of London. And they might well cater to different kinds of clientele, and that might be partly based on geography, how easy it is to get to a particular playhouse. Different playhouses sometimes charge different amounts to get in and that affects who can go and see them. So there were several indoor playhouses at various points throughout the period and they did tend to charge a higher fee. In that sense, they were more exclusive. That doesn't mean they're totally determined who went there, because whoever is prepared to pay and whoever has the money to pay can go to them. But it does restrict who is going to attend. And I suppose we've got some of those kinds of issues today if we think about the price of some West End shows. Some people are completely priced out of some of those kinds of performances. And I guess something similar is happening in 16th and 17th century London as well. What we do know, though, is that Lots of different people went to the theatre and it was a heterogeneous group of people who were attending plays. So we tend to think, or there was an old way of thinking that in an outdoor playhouse like the Globe on the South Bank, the Rose, something in the north of the city, the theatre or the Curtain, or especially perhaps at playhouses like the Fortune and the Red Bull, that those were places which were frequented by if you like, ordinary people, people who were working, people who didn't have the money to go and spend on indoor performances, which are costing more money. And that more elite people, gentlemen and nobility were not attending those kinds of playhouses. And that's not true at all. That's a kind of a very old sort of view where we used to think about there being quite stratified audiences going to different kinds of plays. And it's not really the case. So we know, for example, that somewhere like the Globe, you've got people like the Duke of Buckingham. In fact, two weeks before he is assassinated, he goes to see Henry VIII at the Globe. And Henry VIII, incidentally, is the play that burned down the Globe in 1613, but it's still being performed 15 odd years later. And Buckingham makes a particular effort to see that play. And it is, in fact, part of his attempt to fashion himself politically. And so this is, you know, in 1628, when indoor playing has become a much bigger thing in the earlier 1580s, there are fewer companies performing at indoor playhouses. It seems to be slightly less well-established, and it's something that is restricted only to boy companies. By 1628, adult companies are in indoor playhouses. A company like the King's Men are performing both at the Globe and at an indoor playhouse in the Blackfriars. But it doesn't stop nobility going to a place like the globe. And we've got other evidence, someone like Gondomar, the count, the Spanish count, who was the Spanish ambassador, who was actually satirized in a very famous play called the game of chess, which was a big sensation, a Thomas Middleton play in the 1620s. He was going to see plays at the fortune playhouse. And that's interesting because the fortune is a playhouse that we've tended to think of as not being the kind of place where that kind of person would go. The evidence, actually, insofar as we have it, tells us something very different. So I think we can expect that, particularly at outdoor playhouses, there to be lots of different kinds of people attending those plays. And one of the ways that we know that is that there are different pricing structures within an outdoor playhouse. So you could get in very cheaply, but if you wanted to pay more, sit in a particular place, have a particular experience, you could pay more. So that's the kind of thing that we're seeing across the period.
0: So we've got this sense that people from very high status are going but you're also suggesting that it was possible for those who didn't have much money to buy. Apprentices are common theatrical characters in this period. We've got them, you know, George Chapman, Ben Johnson, John Marston's Eastwood Ho, for example. Would they also have been common in audiences, do you think, young men?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a kind of bone of contention at various points in time. And a good example of this, actually, Is the Francis Beaumont play, The Night of the Burning Pestle, which was performed by a boy company, the Children of the Queen's Rebels, at the Blackfriars. So, one of these more expensive indoor playhouses. And what we see in that play is that a grocer and his wife step forward onto the stage to interrupt the performance and to intervene in the performance. And they object to the kind of play that is being performed. And they don't want that. They don't want this kind of merchant focused city comedy. They want something that is going to include people like themselves. So they get their apprentice onto the stage and he becomes a sort of hero figure in the play and he has these extravagant adventures. This is a play that seemingly failed when it was first performed, although when it gets revived a couple of decades later, it's seemingly quite successful. And there have been all kinds of arguments about why it failed. And is that because, for example, a Blackfriars audience didn't want this kind of intrusion, didn't want the apprentices being interpolated into the kind of drama that they usually watch. And fundamentally, we don't really know exactly why it failed. We don't even completely know that it did fail. That's certainly the way it was kind of advertised, but it's not completely certain that's what happened. But it's an example, I think, of this sort of politicized or the potentially politicized nature of early modern playgoing. There's a sense here that the grocer doesn't belong both in the Blackfriars space and in the kind of play that the Blackfriars do. And that's where the comedy kind of derives from. That's where it, how it emerges. And the kind of plays that the grocer and his wife and the apprentice, Rafe, want to see is the kind of play that you'd probably see if you went to a theater like the Red Bull, which is in Clerkenwell. And that's a theater which has had for a long time a reputation as being quite a rambunctious theater. One of the things that is sometimes said about it is that the people who go there go to see spectacle and drums and loud noises and fireworks. And so there's a lot of kind of classist rhetoric associated with that playhouse, which more recent scholarship has shown is actually much more complicated, that the reality is much more complicated than those kinds of accounts suggest. But it does tell us something about there being lots of different kinds of people going to see plays and not necessarily all wanting to see the same thing. And sometimes there being potential clashes or divergences or disagreements about what constitutes a good day at the theatre or what constitutes good drama or who deserves to be represented in drama. And we still see all of those kinds of things in television and films and in theatre today.
0: Talking about representation, did women attend the theatre? And if they did, did they need to take a man with them?
1: Yeah, I think so. Women did attend the theatre, first of all. And in fact, one of the women who enjoyed theatre most was Queen Henrietta Maria, who, there's some evidence, actually attended a play at the Cockpit Playhouse in the 1630s, and certainly attended lots of plays and performed in drama at court. So at the very highest level, there are lots of women who are interested, deeply interested in plays. There is evidence that women attended plays. I think it probably could be quite dangerous. And that's partly because playhouses are often associated with being sites of kind of sex work. And so there's a possibility, I suppose, at least if you're to believe the kind of accounts that fly around in the period, that a woman at a play might be in danger of being mistaken for being a sex worker, for example. That seems to be possible based on the kind of things that people are saying about theatre, that it could have been a slightly dangerous place. And we're talking about a place where there are pickpockets. We're talking about a much noisier, much smellier kind of theatre culture than the one that we're typically asked to imagine now. Again, if we're thinking about something like the West End or Broadway as being a way that a lot of people imagine theatre happening, that's not at all what you're getting in 16th and 17th century playhouses. And they could be dangerous in various ways for all kinds of people. I mean, there were sometimes brawls at playhouses. There's a story of a woman and child who were shot dead. It may be an apocryphal story, but in 1587, there's an account by Philip Gowdy of a shooting gone wrong at a play, possibly the second part of Christopher Marlowe's *Tamburlaine*. it's not certain, but there's an attempt to shoot. It misses the target and a woman and child are killed. Whether that's actually true or not is not completely certain, but it's a story that circulates around the playhouse and suggests something of the potential dangers for the people who went there. So I do think that it could be, and it was often characterized as being, especially by its opponents, a dangerous place.
0: So there's this sense then that it's dangerous, it can even be fatal, and it's dangerous in terms of morals. I know there are a lot of anti-theatrical tracts being written at this time. Is there a sense that we can chart attitudes to play going, whether it's deemed appropriate or not?
1: Yeah. So pretty consistently throughout the period, there are anti-theatricalists who want to attack the theatre and that never goes away. And in fact, I don't know if I would say that it intensifies necessarily. In some ways, the 1570s and 1580s, those earlier years of professionalised regular playing and playgoing might be considered to be the height of anti-theatrical writing. Someone like Stephen Gosson, who was once a playwright, Is actually a brilliant writer about the theatre. He says these things that the theatre does that are supposedly terrible. He actually makes them sound amazing. But in the 1630s, we've got William Prynne, who writes a frankly demented and incredibly long and highly repetitious screed against theatre and all of the kinds of dramatic entertainment and activity. So it never really goes away. Many of the complaints are obviously... Ridiculous. One thing that is often said about playing, though, which kind of is true, is that playing could gather together large numbers of people, and that might be dangerous. And indeed, that sometimes was dangerous in a world where theatres are frequently having to shut for plague. And that actually, in amongst all of the complaints, some of which are deeply misogynist, there are deeply homophobic complaints about theatre, deeply classist complaints, the idea, for example, that an actor has ideas above their station by performing somebody who they're not, and that it might be socially transgressive to do so. All of that stuff, I think we can see now is ridiculous, although it wouldn't have been felt as ridiculous to everybody at the time, of course. But that issue of large crowds gathering and that potentially bringing plague That does stand true. I mean, whether plague is a punishment from God, I guess, is the different issue, as it's often assumed to be, by anti-theatricists. But it was true that there could be dangers from gathering large numbers of people together in close proximity. And theatres regularly closed throughout the period because of various plague outbreaks.
0: Let's think a bit more then about the structure of a playhouse. You've talked about these different people of different ranks attending. And what I'm interested in is what their experience was like. So do we find separate groups based on their wealth or how much they've paid sitting in different areas? And if so, what does that do to sight lines and sound quality and their experience in differing parts of a playhouse?
1: So it absolutely makes a difference. I think we just know intuitively and from our own experiences that where we sit, what we observe affects what we can see, what we can hear and so on. And that's absolutely true. I mean, it's a big concern, for example, with reconstructed early modern playhouses, such as the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse. You sit in certain parts of that theatre and you're very uncomfortable. You sit in certain parts and you might not be able to see things and so on. And that's true of theatres of all descriptions, of course. What's slightly frustrating is that we don't really have anybody who talks about this in the period. We do have early modern playgoing accounts, but they never really do the kind of things that we might want them to do. So an example of this would be someone like Simon Foreman, who goes to see and records seeing several Shakespeare plays by the King's men at the Globe in 1611, including Macbeth and Richard II and The Winter's Tale. And he says some interesting things about them, but really he's telling us plot details. He's saying things about the morals that he drew from the plot. And that's kind of it. And that's frequently the case throughout early modern playgoing accounts, that they're not giving us necessarily the kind of details that we might want to have. So another example that I'm interested in, John Chamberlain, for instance, who's a prolific letter writer, he regularly writes about other people going to see plays, not necessarily himself. When he goes to see a play, he doesn't tell us that much about it. So he sees A Humorous Day's Mirth by George Chapman, which is a big theatrical sensation. And we've got enough evidence to know that that was a very popular play. And he says he doesn't like it. He just doesn't say why. He just didn't. He goes to see a game at chess, this big theatrical sensation I mentioned earlier. And he doesn't actually get into the playhouse itself to tell us anything. He talks about all of the people who are going to see it. It attracts all of the great and good. He's commenting on all these members of the nobility who are going to see. He doesn't see it himself. So we're constantly frustrated by these things. Another one, Henry Watton writes about seeing the Shakespeare and John Fletcher play Henry the Eighth on the day that the globe burned down. And he says some really interesting things about it, but then the globe burns down. So naturally his account turns to the fact that the globe's on fire and there's some poor bloke trying to put out his breeches with a bottle of ale. So we're constantly frustrated and thwarted by the accounts, which don't necessarily do what we want them to do. But what we know, and actually one of the best sources for this kind of information are foreign visitors, for whom this whole thing is really quite weird. So you get German visitors, Swiss visitors, Thomas Platter is a good example of this. And they find the whole thing strange. So they write things like, oh, and people went into the theater and some of them went off into a box and some of them went down into the pit. And, oh, this is all really interesting. Whereas people who are going to plays regularly, that's just what they do. It's not something that they're necessarily going to comment on, or at least if they did, that kind of information hasn't survived to us. In the galleries, for example, part of the appeal seems to be that you are in a position both where you can see and where you can be seen. And being seen seems to be something that you want to do if you're in a theatre. Another prominent position that you could sit in, certainly at indoor theatres, but perhaps also (laughs) at outdoor theatres, is on the stage. And young gallants, again, especially at indoor playhouses, and this is often a figure of fun in plays themselves, enjoyed sitting on the stage, often wearing elaborate flamboyant hats where they could be seen. And that is part of the idea. Some of those seats might actually not be the best in terms of sight lines, but it doesn't matter. They've almost become part of the sort of furniture of the stage in some way. They might be interacted with, they'd certainly be seen. But a big appeal of going to these playhouses was that you could be seen. And especially if you're thinking about those big outdoor playhouses, there's no artificial lighting. So everything is done in shared light and you can see and be seen. And that's something that seems really fundamental to 16th and 17th century playgoing. It seems to have been a big appeal for some people and perhaps especially people who wanted to be seen. Buckingham is another very high-profile example. When he went to see Henry VIII in 1628, he wanted to be seen. That was part of why he went there. He wanted to make a show of him being there. And I think that kind of thing happened on a more kind of mundane level very, very frequently throughout the period of professional playing.
0: What I was struck by in what you've just said is this sense that if we have contemporary accounts of going to the theatre – By definition, they're going to be from people who can write, (laughs) and probably, therefore, at a higher level of society. So there's something almost impossible about capturing the experience of playgoing for more ordinary people.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think a problem that we have in scholarship that we're trying to get around, I think, is both because, as you say, there's an evidentiary issue. What we see are generally people who are of a particular social class, but also... We tend to want to privilege people who are a bit like us. I mean, it's fanatics, people who really like the theatre. I want to see an early modern play. I'd like to go back in time and see one. So naturally, I kind of might gravitate towards somebody who saw lots of plays. And that can also give us a false impression that everybody was going to plays all of the time and everybody was a really fanatical, frequent playgoer. And that won't have been the case simply because it takes time and it takes money to go to plays. So... Although a playing company wants people to go to see plays every day and as frequently as possible, that simply cannot be and is not a reality. So we're probably wrestling with something that's much patchier, playgoers who are going when they can. And again, actually, even among more elite playgoers, we have a handful of Caroline-era playgoing diarists. And what's interesting is that they're not going to plays that much. They're certainly not going every day. They're going maybe once a week, a couple of times a week for a certain period of time. Then they might not go for a couple of months. They might be out of the city, for example. We've slightly, I think, without fully realizing it, accepted an idea that because playing was a very popular activity that lots of people went to, that people were there all the time. And again, what the documented evidence, insofar as we have it, tells us, and the main piece of evidence for this would be the theatrical account book of Philip Henslow, the owner of the Rose Playhouse. What he does is for a period of time in the 1590s, he lists every play that was performed at the Rose and how much money he earned from it. And what we can see is that the amount of money he could get from a performance varied drastically. On a full house, he might get, and this is just his share, bear in mind, but he might get 75 shillings or something like that. On a really bad day, he'd get seven, eight shillings. And the average is much, much lower than 75. It would be 20, 30 shillings, something like that. So what we're actually reckoning with, I think, is a playhouse that is often nowhere near full. How empty, it's hard to say, but certainly not packed to the gills. And that's the image that we like to imagine. And that's the image that is passed down in filmic representations. It's disenchanting to think that if we turned up at the Globe in 1610 to watch something, we might be one of hundreds rather than thousands of people seeing whatever play was on that day. But that seems to have been the reality. So lots of people couldn't go to plays all the time. Lots of people will have missed plays. And that's something that's difficult to factor in, but seems to be true, that playgoers experience plays in quite a messy and unregulated way. Are they around to see a play? Are they able to get to it? Can they be bothered to go to it? Do they have something else to do? Do they have the money to go to it? There are other distractions. Do they want to go bear baiting? Do they want to gamble? Do they want to see something else? There are plenty of things to do and not everybody has time to do everything.
0: Can we think about the plays that were put on and how the system worked? Because when we go to the theatre now, we book ahead, have to really, and you know who and what you're going to see. How did this work for early modern audiences? Was that the case for them? Did they know ahead of time what play was going to be put on when they went?
1: I think nothing like the system that we have now exists. There's no way that you can book months in advance. As you say, if you're going to see a production which might be very popular, particularly if it's got a star actor, you'll have to book well in advance in order to have any chance of going. I don't think there's any evidence that you can book in advance at all. You certainly can't know about a production months ahead of it taking place. You find out about what plays are on, I think primarily through playbills. And sadly, no English theatre playbill from this period survives. Or rather, the only one that survives is for a fake play. So weirdly, Richard Venner made a fake play called England's Joy, which never took place. And I think it was never intended to take place. He ran off with the money and was eventually arrested. And bizarrely, a playbill for that non-play survives. But we don't have anything else. So we're kind of left to guess at what a playbill might have looked like. But it would include information about the play that was going to be on that day, for sure. So you'd be able to know what was going to take place on that day, maybe the day before, who knows, maybe a week before perhaps that we might be talking about something like that. But we don't have a really good handle on how many days notice you might expect to get to see a play. It's possible that some people are just turning up and they don't really care what exactly is on. And actually, part of the pleasure of going to the theatre is to go to the theatre, that it's a multisensory experience. It's a communal experience. You might meet other people there. You might go to get something to eat either at the playhouse itself, because playhouses often had ale houses and they sold food, or before or after a play. And again, we've got playgoing diaries, which show us playgoers going to see plays and then recording that they've gone to a tavern to have something to eat or drink. Thomas Decker, who's a 17th century playwright and also a pamphleteer, he writes about the proper place for playgoers to go when a play is over as being the tavern. And I think lots of people will have gone. So there's a sort of social experience. And that also ties into the point I made earlier about playhouses being a place where you go to be seen. And one of the ways I think that we can see that is true is that playgoing diarists, sometimes when they're listing plays that they've seen, they'll just say Play almost the title doesn't matter. They've gone to see a play and that's a part of why you go, the whole theatrical experience. And that's quite difficult for us because obviously we don't have access to that theatrical past. We can imagine, but we can't see what it was like for a play to be performed. And we have the texts which purport to be something like the performance, but in lots of ways aren't. And so the idea that somebody might go and see a Shakespeare play not to hear the beautiful language or whatever, seems slightly at odds with the way that we're often told to think and talk about Shakespeare, but it seems to have been a principal pleasure for lots of people going to the playhouses in this period. On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles.
0: I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion.
1: I'm Matt Lewis and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, I know that in your current work, you're looking at what it means for a play to be referred to as new. That seems, at first glance, to be obvious. It's the play's premiere. Is that the case in the early modern period? And also, novelty is often considered a very bad thing in this period. So did people want to go and see a new play?
1: It is slightly more complicated, I think. But it's certainly true that on the one hand, a new play, or at least a brand new play, is something at its premiere. And it's certainly true also that those kinds of performances had a particular charge. and There was something exciting about a play when it was at its newest. And part of the reason for that is a play when it's at its newest, and Tiffany Stern's work is the best work on this subject, was quite vulnerable. It was vulnerable to change. If a play is badly received when it's first performed, it might not get performed again, or it might not have much of a stage life. And there's a sense that, again, that's part of why you go to see a play when it's being premiered because you get to sort of decide whether it will be changed or whether it will take place again. And lots and lots of people are going to premieres. There's a real buzz about them. And again, we've got lots of accounts of this. They may have charged more money to get in. And all of these things, in a sense, make it more interesting to go. Lots of people are going to be there. There'll be big crowds. Nobody knows what the play exactly will be or what exactly it will be like or how it will go down. The playwright might be in attendance. How is he going to react to this thing? So for lots of reasons, I think there was a buzz. It's right to say that novelty is treated with deep suspicion in the early modern period. And that's something that's interesting about plays, that they seem, unlike other aspects of culture in the period and other aspects of society, novelty seems to be something that is valuable and exciting about going to theatre. And it's maybe also part of what people find dangerous about it, the sense of it as it's new, it's newfangledness. And we are also talking, particularly in the 1570s and 1580s, as an enterprise that is really still quite new. Not drama, obviously, drama has taken place for centuries, but playing six days a week, all of that stuff is still pretty new as well. I do think, though, that newness is slightly more complicated because there are questions, for example, about at what point a play ceases to be new. And that's where things kind of start getting complicated. Is a play new only when it's premiered and then no longer? Can a play that has been not performed for a while come back and seem new again? And that's partly speaks to the function of the repertory system itself. So the early modern repertory works in a way that you have to have pretty much a different play every day of the week, but you'll repeat some of those plays. You'll very rarely play them back to back. That's partly what was so exciting about a play like a game of chess that it was played on consecutive days. And it'd be pretty unusual also to play a play more than once in the same week. And what that means is that plays are being performed in a constantly sort of ever-changing theatrical environment. If we go to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre now, for example, we will only be able to see a small number of plays at any given time, and they'll be performed in conjunction with two or three other plays. And those plays will invite comparison with each other. What you've got in early modern England, which is also what you've got in other repertory systems around the world now, for example, in Germany... Is you've got a system where you've got much larger number of plays that are being performed in close proximity to each other over a longer period of time and they're coming in and they're coming out. And that, in a certain sense, can keep them fresh. It can mean that when a new play comes in, it can revitalize an older play. So for instance, a play like George Chapman's The Blind Beggar of Alexandria, which was a bit of a theatrical hit. And again, we can judge its success partly because we have this document, Henslow's Diary from the mid-1590s, which details plays at the Rose, that's a play that satirizes several of Marlowe's plays. There are various moments where the lead figure in the play puts on different disguises, which seem to be, in some sense, mimicking famous plays by Marlowe. Marlowe's plays were also in rep with The Blind Beggar of Alexandria. So suddenly, something like The Jew of Malta is reanimated or reinvigorated by this new context that it has that it didn't have before. So there's a sense in which a play which seems old can actually seem new again, depending on this ever-changing kind of repertorial landscape. And in some instances, we've got plays which they might not have been played for 10 years or so. Is that an old play or is that a new play? That's really going to depend on the eye of the beholder. But there might be some playgoers who recognize it as an old play and treated as such. And there may be some people who think, well, I've not seen this before, actually. And this seems pretty new to me. And there's a sense in which newness is something that's also conditional, something which is slightly more mutable than we sometimes imagine it. But it's a big appeal, I think, for lots of playgoers that the excitement of seeing something new or seeing it anew, something that they've seen before, but in new terms, in new circumstances.
0: How did this repertory system work in practice when we think of plays that are written in sequence? If we think of Shakespeare's successive plays, Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry Fourth, Part Two, etc., how did that work? Could playgoers make sure they saw the plays in order, or is that just not
1: possible? So we don't have concrete evidence for how the Shakespeare, say Henry plays are performed. But we do have good evidence for how plays by the Admiral's men were performed. And what we know again in the 1590s is that plays like Tamberlin, which is a two-part play, plays like Hercules, another two-part play now lost, and various other lost plays. There's a lost play of Tamacham, which was performed around that time. What we can see is that the Admiral's men are making a concerted effort to perform those plays on consecutive days. So they're inviting playgoers to see the plays as a pair, to see one and then come back the next day. And it seems entirely possible that that's happening with, say, the Henry IV plays, although we don't have concrete evidence to prove that. What we don't know is how many people took the bait and saw both on consecutive days. In some ways, it's a bit of an undertaking, as I said earlier, for somebody to go to a playhouse on consecutive days. It's what the playing companies want you to do whether you've got the time and money to do it is less clear. But the Admiral's Men, and you would think other playing companies, like the idea of putting these plays next to each other and encouraging you to see both and encouraging you to see them in chronological order. However, first-part plays could float free of second-part plays. So what's interesting is that in 1594, the Admiral's Men revive first part of Tambal, and this is a massive, one of the biggest blockbusters throughout the entire period, premieres around 1587, so it's not a new play in 1594, not in terms of how long it's existed. It might have seemed new to some people if they'd not seen it before. They might have been seeing it for the first time. But in 1594, it's several years old. And what's interesting is that initially they perform only the first part. So they perform it eight times over a period of several months. Then they pair it with the second part. The second part is never performed alone. So I think there is a sense, and we can't confirm this for sure, but certainly looking at the Admiral's men, it seems that they don't mind people seeing the first part of a play on its own, but they don't think that a second part works alone, so they want to put it in conversation with the first part. But again, that doesn't actually prove that that's how people necessarily saw the plays. And I think the idea that playgoers in general saw plays in the kind of chronological order of their composition, I think is not right. I mean, sometimes that will have happened, but in lots of cases it won't, because that's not how they were necessarily performed. I think sequence plays might be a bit of an exception, but even there, it's not completely clear that that's totally the case. And a play like Henry the Fourth, part two which begins with Rumor, who is in some ways trying to recount what's happened previously. It's not totally clear, and Emma Smith has argued this, that the second part requires you to have seen the first part or is necessarily interested in you doing so. So it's not totally clear how these two-part plays exactly worked in the period, but there's definitely some evidence that they were sometimes paired and that there was a particular enjoyment to be had from seeing them both in succession.
0: So... One thinks of a series like the Harry Potter films as a comparison, so they work in sequence, but they also have to be written to work as individual films. And presumably that's the kind of principle that's going on here when we come to looking at Shakespeare's plays. I can't really believe I just made that comparison, but you get the idea. So it would alter how the play was written so that they could stand as individual
1: works. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And you know, it's not always clear how these plays were presented to their audiences. The title of a play when it's printed is not necessarily the title of a play as it was performed. And a good example of this is the plays that we now tend to call Henry VI, Part One, Two, and Three. That's not how they were re- being packaged, even in print in the period. So it's really not clear how they were being consumed. And we have evidence of other plays, a play that we tend to think of as Othello, it seems generally to have been thought of as the more of Venice by people who actually went to see it. So in all kinds of ways, the sort of titles of plays are not necessarily the ones that have been passed down to us. And that also frames the way that a playgoer experiences the play, because one of the things that we might expect to know when we go into a play, maybe the only thing, if we've never seen that play before, is the title. And the title does cue us to expect certain things, but we can't always be clear about what the titles were. And again, in his account book, in his daily accounts, Henslow often uses a variety of different kinds of names. So he calls Christopher Marlowe's The Mask of Paris, but he also calls it Guise after one of the main figures in it. And he gives it some other names as well at, at various points. So whatever name the play had in performance has the potential to frame or affect a playgoer's experience. And some of those names are probably not apparent to us. And indeed, lots of plays, of course, are also lost, which is the other thing. Most plays are lost. What survives to us is a small proportion of what actually existed at the time. We've got a fragment, really, of what was there.
0: But if plays couldn't be booked in advance and titles varied, then there's a great chance that an audience member is going to see a play for the second or third or fourth time. And that presumably changes the experience as well of seeing a play, because You know how it ends. And so, does that mean that there needs to be a kind of different kind of richness or reflexivity in the text?
1: I think so. Playing companies want two things they want you to see all of the plays, they also want you to see all of the plays all of the time. And that obviously can't have been the case, but that's what they're aiming for. So, they want you to come back and see the same play multiple times. And the way that the repertory system works, it encourages that because You might go on a Tuesday in one week, and then you might not go for another month, but the play that you saw on the Tuesday might be the play that you go to see on the Thursday in that week. So in all kinds of strange ways, the repertory system encourages repeat play going. It encourages you to keep coming back. And I think the experience will be different. As you say, if you know the plot and the plot hinges on a particular moment, then that moment then works differently. On the one hand, maybe it doesn't work. On the other hand, maybe there's a different kind of suspense that builds because you know what is going to happen and you can't stop it and you can see it. So I think that those plays work differently. I think some of these plays are very dense. They're very rich in terms of the illusions. And you might enjoy those illusions more second time around. Also, you might not get an illusion when you first see a play. You might, in the interim see the play that was being alluded to go back and see the play again and get the illusion differently so i think that repeat playgoers are rewarded and then there's also the issues we were discussing earlier about where you sit or where you stand in a playhouse that could affect it what the weather was like how many people were in the audience if you go and see a play and it's packed out and it's one of those days where everybody's there that's a very different kind of experience to if you're going in, it's the middle of winter, it's freezing, and it's a very small audience. You're getting a different kind of experience. And I think that's a function of the repertory. That's just something that is going to happen. But it's also, there's a kind of pleasure there for some playgoers. And maybe there are some people who are particularly avid, who want to see lots of theatre, who get something in particular out of the experience of seeing things multiple times. But it's also true. I mean, I've, there are some things that I watch, lots of times for comfort or because I particularly enjoy it, or I haven't seen it for a while and I've forgotten slightly what it was like, or I want to check if I still think the same about something that I saw before. And those kinds of things must have animated some playgoers in the period as well. I think there are lots of reasons why people might have wanted to see plays multiple times. And it's an understudy topic. It's not something that as scholars, we've really been able to get to grips with, partly because again lack of evidence, we can't really pinpoint somebody who did this. It definitely must have happened. And we know that someone like Ben Johnson, for example, talks about it happening, or certainly wants it to happen. He talks about people coming back five, six times. But because we don't necessarily have that concrete evidence, and because I think we're quite wedded to the idea of the theatrical premiere, and to the idea of a playgoer's first contacted something, it's perhaps obscured the reality that A substantial part of the play going public will have seen plays multiple times, and that the plays could take that, and maybe even were designed for it. It's something that playing companies and playwrights want.
0: I like the idea that going to a playhouse in this period is a bit like playing the slot machines or scrolling down Instagram. You know, they don't know quite what they're going to get, but it might be a delicious treat. Can we talk a little bit more about the actual experience of going and thinking of some of the practicalities? There's no electric light. So when a play is being performed, how long do they take? Where do people go to the loo? (laughs) Are they eating during the performance? (laughs) Do they have their popcorn equivalent? That sort of thing.
1: Yeah, and eating is a big part of it. And again, in many of the best accounts that we have of eating in the playhouses come from foreign visitors who are like, oh, look, they're eating apples and they're nuts and everything's for sale and there's a tap house here and you can go and get ale and so forth. And people who are consuming that sort of stuff regularly don't always mention it as much, but it was a massive part of going to the theater. And and in fact, plays do make reference to apples being eaten and nuts being eaten. In Henry VIII, for example, a play that I keep mentioning for some reason, there's a reference to apples being eaten. There's a reference to youths competing over apples to eat in a performance. So it's definitely a big part of the experience. Plays have to take place in daytime, we think, or certainly they mostly seem to take part in in daytime. Uh, I guess in... You know, something like two o'clock seems to be a standard time. It's not impossible that you could get later performances, particularly in lighter summer months. But the issue of lighting is clearly really important to an outdoor playhouse, less so to an indoor playhouse. I'm not aware, or I can't think of indoor performances taking place in the evening. I think that they also take place in the day itself. One of the reasons why the King's Men... And as they were before, the Chamberlain's men are really interested in getting an indoor playhouse because you can do different things. You can perform at different times. If it's really awful weather and nobody wants to see a play outdoors and it's freezing cold in the winter, you've got an indoor playhouse. If it's the opposite and it's a really lovely time, you've got an outdoor playhouse. That's not necessarily how the playhouses worked. We don't actually have a really good handle on how those playhouses were used, other than that, they were indeed used. Simultaneously, it's not like they got access to the indoor playhouse and then they stopped doing the outdoor playhouse. but it seems to have been part of the attraction for theater companies to have different spaces where you can do different things. But I think we are to expect audiences to have been often quite rowdy, and there to have been lots of food and drink, and that to have been a standard practice, not something that's sort of peripheral thing, but a big part of going to the theater, and also a big source of income as well. They must have made quite a bit of cash from all of the people who were buying various foodstuffs and so on to go to performance. And occasionally there are stories of people, again, maybe apocryphal, throwing apple cores and so on at performers. And indeed there were times where plays didn't succeed and people were booed off stage or were (laughs) not well treated by their audiences. But that's also a factor. Another thing to consider, as I said earlier, where the playhouses are and how you're gonna get to them. If you're going to the South Bank, where there are various playhouses, you've got the globe, the rose, the swan, you've also got bear baiting arenas, then you might have to go across the river. And that's a simple enough thing to do, but it's something to factor in and it will cost you to get across unless you want to go across a bridge, but then you've got a longer journey and so on. But these are things that playgoers will have had to factor in and when they are deciding where to attend. And how they did that, it's not always clear. I mean, I think often you might choose to go to the convenient place. So in court lawyers, they often went to places like the Cockpit Playhouse, which is in Drury Lane. They often went to the Blackfriars. And part of that I think is that those were sort of playhouses which catered to their desires. There's lots of plays about lawyers and those kinds of theatres, for example. And also that they're places where you pay more to get in and you can display yourself on the stage and so on. But also they were convenient. It was local, it was easy to get to those kinds of playhouses. Similarly, a playhouse like the Red Bull in Clerkenwell, it will have drawn its audience from its local area because that's convenient for people to go to. And I think there's a little bit of the chicken and the egg there in terms of what comes first: the sort of the playhouse culture or the audience. I think it's a collaborative practice where theatre companies are trying to cater to audience desires. They're trying to anticipate audience desires because you want to be a bit ahead of the trend. You don't want to constantly just cater to what's in front of you in case. You go bored and stale and somebody else robs your clientele. But audiences are also feeding things back constantly to playing companies by how they're responding to a play, whether they're receiving it well, whether they're attending even. That's one of the biggest ways that you can vote on a successful play. Just don't turn up. So there's a sense there of a kind of collaboration that's taking place. And I think theatre companies are aware of each other. And if somebody has a play which does really well you might do your own play on that subject. And because there are no copyright laws or anything like that, and also because we're talking about a culture where imitation is a part of art in a way that is not generally viewed in quite the same way today. And originality doesn't seem to have been valued quite as much as we might tend to value it now. There's no problem with just ripping something off. And that's perhaps why you get various plays circulated on similar subjects. There's a huge proliferation of English history chronicle plays, for example, by lots of playwrights, not just Shakespeare. And people could see the story of Henry V in various forms at various different playhouses at various points. And that's partly because playing companies are aware of each other and they're looking out for what might be successful and they want to give their audience a bit of that.
0: You've given us a bit of a sense about sources in so far as you've talked about foreign visitors and Philip Henslow's accounts. You made a comment in passing earlier that I'd like to return to, which is about printed texts and how they don't exactly represent what was performed. How then can we judge what an early modern audience would have experienced, given that all that we have is the printed text?
1: I think we start with the realisation that the printed texts is not a performance. And we try to remember that a theatrical performance constitutes lots of different elements, some of which are not reproducible in text. That there are times where texts seek to reproduce some of the kinds of effects or some of the sort of flavor of a theatrical experience. But they're fundamentally, they're different media. I think we try and resist certain assumptions that have become codified over time. So an obvious one and somebody like Richard Price has done important work on this, is the figure of the clown. Clowns are sometimes cut out of playtexts, And when they are represented in playtext, those roles are often reduced. And they don't always seem to make all that much sense. And that's partly because clowning is something that is theatrical rather than literary. And it's very difficult to render a clown role, which might be heavy on improvisation and on kind of physical theater and so on in the printed form, whereas something like a soliloquy, that crosses the boundary more readily. You can see how that might work in performance, but you can also enjoy it as poetry, as something that's printed. I think we need to resist some of those kinds of assumptions which are passed down to us, and which are sometimes passed down to us by the texts themselves. So a good example of this is the two parts of Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine, which as I said, are a huge theatrical sensation. They get printed for the first time together in 1590. And the publisher, Richard Jones, admits to having cut bits that he didn't think worked. And they're implicitly, they're clown comic scenes, which he doesn't think are decorous enough that they're ill-suited to the tragedy. So the text that survives to us misses out those things. And if we don't know what it would be like if those things were in, but it's going to be different. And it's going to challenge our sense of what Tamblyn is like as a play, because we think about Tamblin as entirely in verse as about rhetoric and military conquest and battles, and clowns are not doing those kinds of things. Those kinds of clown sins will change it. And similarly, Marlowe as a writer, we've tended to think about as being a great poet and a great tragic writer, but all of his plays really have got comic bits in them. Dr. Faustus has comic bits that seem to have been added later, perhaps by other playwrights. We don't quite know what to do with those, and there's a sort of suspicion of them. And sometimes we treat it as if they're less good bits. But those assumptions are not necessarily the assumptions of an early modern audience. So we've got to, I think, constantly challenge our assumptions and be careful of thinking that the sorts of judgments that we might make now, and even the sorts of judgments that we're sometimes encouraged to make by playtexts, are not necessarily the judgments that would be made by playgoers themselves. And Shakespeare actually is a good example of this. Shakespeare's position as the sort of shining light of the English early modern theatre is and is not correct, I think. I think there is a sense that he's a writer who is very highly regarded. He has lots of different markers of success, but he's not the bardic figure that he's later taken to be. And the range of ways that people will engage with his plays will have been different. I mean, for one, it's not clear how many people would know a Shakespeare play if they saw it, because it's not clear that playbills include information about who the author was. Play text, printed playbooks often include that information. Increasingly over time, it becomes standard. It becomes one of the ways that you advertise a play. And in print, I think people would have said, oh, Shakespeare, I know who that is. But that information isn't necessarily on the playbill. The information that needs to be there really is the play, I guess. That's pretty important. And the location and the time. Those are the things that you need to know where to go and at what time. And it helps to know what the play is. You don't need to know necessarily who the playing company is, although that might be something to know. You don't need to know the author at all. And so it's not clear to us how many people who are just going to the theatre I'm not talking about the more avid people and the more informed people. I'm not talking about the book buying public, which I think will not be as big as the theatre buying public. It's not clear that they know who any given writer is. It's not totally clear that they go to see Hamlet and think that's Shakespeare's Hamlet. They know it's Hamlet, but who the author is, whether they care about the author, that's much less clear. So in all kinds of ways, you've just got to be careful of those sorts of assumptions that are passed down to us. And as I say, it's particularly difficult because... Playtext themselves often want us to make those kinds of connections because they have particular priorities. Richard Jones is trying to sell an edition of Tambourine. He doesn't think, rightly or wrongly, that the clown bits work, so he cuts them, and that's what we're left with. That doesn't mean that early modern playgoers necessarily agreed.
0: Okay, finally, then, you've given us a bit of a sense of this, but to collect together your thoughts, in what major ways? Does the experience of playgoing in the early modern period differ from our experience of theatre today?
1: So I think the experience for the early modern playgoer, and this I guess is also true for the contemporary playgoer, depends on what kind of play they're going to see and where they're going to see it. So that's the first thing to say, and at what point in time. So there are those kinds of, going to see an indoor play, I think is in many important ways different to going to see an outdoor play. And it's also true for us that going to see a play at a regional theatre isn't the same as going to see a play at a big West End theatre, for example. So there are those kinds of things that we just need to be aware of that there are always a plurality of experiences. And it's very difficult for us to get at that because it's much easier to talk in more concrete terms. We've got a plurality of experiences. You've got lots of different playgoers of different kinds of social status with different kinds of playgoing experiences. Some people are going to see a play for the first time Their experience won't be the same as somebody seeing the same play who's seen lots and lots of different plays. They'll have different things that they're interested in. But in general, I think we're expecting the early modern playhouse experience to be a lot smellier. It will be probably the more rambunctious. Food and drink will be a bigger part of it. There are lots of debates these days about theatre etiquette. Somebody like Kirsty Sedgman writes a lot about this, but there are lots of controversies about theatre etiquette, how to behave in a contemporary theatre. Some of those kinds of issues are true in the early modern theatre, I suppose. But in general, we're talking about a a much more permissive kind of theatre play-going culture than the kind of theatre that we might typically experience today.
0: Well, it's fun to think that there's actually some sense of discussion about what is right today. You can go and see a relaxed performance today, can't you? Which perhaps might be a more authentic early modern experience of going to the theatre. Thank you so much Dr Price for giving us a bit of an insight into this world of playgoing and also into the challenges of researching it and what the evidence can tell us and what it can't. It's been really fun to think about this aspect of Elizabethan and Jacobean culture. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. It's been brilliant.
0: Thanks to my producer Rob Weinberg, my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects, so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the tutors.